Scripture tells us that during the spring, when the time came for the kings to go out and make war, David stayed back, grew weary of the battle, grew weary of the fight, and he found himself longing for a break. And longing for a break, he fell. Scripture is filled with a concept that our life with Christ is intended to be warfare. Paul said, when in describing Paul's life, the, the summation of his whole life, he said, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. The, the concept that Paul's laying out for us is the idea that, that this world is a battleground. And we long for, often, times of peace. And I'm not saying that times of peace don't come. But we need to understand, this world is battleground. Every day we wake up, we got to wake up with the attitude that says, I'm ready to go to war. And if on that day we find the sun shine a little brighter, and God gives us a little breath of fresh air and a time of peace, then we praise His name. And if we get up in the morning and we go out and we find that the sun is hidden behind the clouds and the wind is blowing and the storm is hitting, we may lift up a lament. But all the while we're doing what the Psalters did, what the writers throughout the Psalms did, because every day was a battlefield. Every day is battleground. Some days... We'll, we'll be looking through psalms of praise. And some days we'll be going through uh, imprecatory psalms, psalms of cursing. Some days we'll be looking at psalms of lament. Each one is a cry to God through real life. Not some sanctified, sanctimonious existence that... That people like to hide behind and say, oh yeah, you know, it's, there's no battles. It's all good. It is all good, but there's all battle. And we want to have the attitude. I want to have the attitude like Paul did. So that at the end of my life, I can say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. The Bible tells in the book of Hebrews that we will enter into that rest. And who is our rest? Jesus Christ. That's right. Our rest is in the Lord. In Him. One day, there will be that perfect rest that He has. And we can find ourselves in perfect peace here in the midst of the storm. If we can learn the lesson that Psalms teaches us. Life is hard. God is good. Man, no hiding from his eyes what's going on. And prayerfully, we'll see that as we work our way through. We're going to find ourselves in Psalm 7 as we, uh, as we continue our journey through the Psalms. And here in Psalm 7, we have a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Cush was uh, this... Uh, Ultra flatterer for Saul. 
He was always telling Saul what a great guy he was, what a great king he was. And probably, we don't know for sure, but probably one of the voices in Saul's ear to tell him what a no good guy David was, that David's just trying to take his throne. That David's just trying to take control. So during the time when David's battling, having his battles with Saul, right, where he's living in caves and he's hiding from him and he's going through that time, he's, he begins in verse 1, Oh Lord my God, in you... I put my trust. So save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. Now when David calls out, man, it is so good and so right for us to call upon the Lord for His deliverance and for His uh, uh, saving, Hosanna, save now, for His uh, work and movement in our life. And that's a key to the ability in this psalm we, we find ourselves looking at a praise psalm, which is in a dark time or a difficult journey in David's life. Yet he praises God because he knows that's where his salvation comes from. Not in his circumstance. I, I can have this rock as my pillow, sleeping in dirt in a cave, you know, because I know God's with me. And he'll deliver me. And the attitude, the problem with most people when they think about the deliverance of God is they think about the deliverance of God. Well, God's going to deliver me right now. He's going to save me out of this hardship. But that's not always the case. Sometimes it is. But sometimes how God delivers you through the hardship is He gives you enough strength in your legs to get up one more day. He gives you the strength to persevere, to endure. Because this is important for us to realize. God is less concerned with your destination or desire where you want to be and more concerned with the journey to get you there. David's desire, I want to be king. God told me I want to be king. The kingship is coming, right? Somewhere down the line, kingship is coming. But God was more concerned with, with shaping David, that lump of, of clay, shaping David into the king God needed him to be. It was the journey that made the man, not the destination. And the same is true in your life and mine. It's the journey that makes the man or the woman. It's the journey that shapes us and makes us. So when we cry out for deliverance, keep in mind to have far-reaching sight and not nearsightedness that you're thinking i i want to be saved from this struggle right now and realize that struggle right now might be the very thing that shapes you into the woman man that that god wants you to be so when we cry for that deliverance when we cry out for salvation that's how you know all through the psalm god hears you and he is doing what you've asked He's just not doing it always in the way we want. But the result is so much better. Here's David's heart. Lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. Lord, I feel like my whole life's getting tore apart. Think about all things David went through during that time. He lost his first wife, his first love. He had to run away from Saul, right? He lost his house, living in the, in the palace. That had to be pretty good digs, right? Now he traded the palace for a cave. He's constantly in fear for his life. Can you imagine feeling like, yeah, I feel like the lions are tearing me apart. 
But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? And everything, again, that he went through shaped the man after God's own heart. It shaped who he was and what he was about. So then as he, as he, 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 he first starts with God. God, you're here. You save me. You deliver me. And then he's honest. I feel like I'm being torn apart by the lions. And then in that honesty, he goes before the Lord and gives an honest self-evaluation, if you will. Look what he says. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there's iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me or have plundered my enemy without cause, then let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. God, if I'm guilty, uh, uh, if I am in a, in a bad place with you, Lord, then I deserve your judgment. I deserve it. I deserve the judgment that you're bringing. But he's being honest, Lord. If I have coming with the attitude and he wants God to be that judge, that's where he leads to. As he's praising the Lord for what he's doing and how he's working in his life, he says, basically, uh, to, to simplify it, if there's sin in my life, God, you judge it. That's what he's in, in verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me. To have judgment, you have commanded. David never wanted to be judged by his enemies. Who did he want to be judged by? God, judge me. God, you know. If my heart screwed up, God, you fix it. If my attitudes are wrong, Lord, you adjust them. Not my enemy. Don't let my enemy glory in in my destruction because I put myself in your hands. Counting himself in God's hands that God would move. And in verse 7 he says, So the congregation of the peoples shall surround you for their sakes. Therefore, return on high for the Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. Look, if I have done these sins, uh, probably, remember I told you it's Cush telling Saul about, you know, David's, you know, two-faced or he's trying to take... Saul's crown. So, so David's calling out to the Lord. You be the judge. If I've done this, then judge me. But you judge me according to what I have actually done. My righteousness doesn't mean that he's somehow holy or, or my, uh, integrity within me. He's saying, my, I'm being honest, God. You're the judge. And if this guy's saying truth, then, then let that judgment fall. Let that judgment be here. But then he cries out, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. But establish the just, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. Ultimately, when we go through the Psalms, we're going to hear this concept several times. Let the wicked get caught in his own snare or his own trap. And ultimately, when we say that, it's a poetic way of saying that sin is going to pay. Right? The wages of sin is death. Is that always immediate? As soon as I sin, I die? No. It's a process, right? It's a process that takes hold of someone's life. And so when he says that, he's saying, man, the wicked are facing this. There's gonna be, there's gonna be that point, that period, that time. But the righteous, God tests the hearts and minds. Can you pull the wool over God's eyes? Can you wear a mask in church and pretend to be holy and pretend to love the Lord and then fool God? No, you can't fool God. 
He's righteous and he tests the hearts and minds. He knows what's real, what's going on in our lives. And he says in verse 10, my defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. So he puts himself in God's hands. Through the psalm, as he's praising, it's, it's so amazing to me, as he's, as he's coming out in, in, uh, in a, a prayer of, of meditation and ultimately a prayer of praising and trusting in God. Hey, Lord, it's so hard. And I feel like I'm being torn apart by the lions and all this stuff that's being said. I don't think I've done any of that, but God, you judge me. You, you work your work in my life. I put myself in your hands. See, don't you see that's why David was able to have Saul lay down in front of him and not kill him? Because David didn't hate Saul. You ever been really burned by somebody? So much so that your heart yearns for vengeance that if that person was hunting you down and you found him asleep, then you could drive the spear through him and pin him to the ground? The reason David was free of that desire for Saul is because he saw everything happening in his life through the hands of a God who loves him. He said, God, you're where I put myself in your hands. Whatever happens to me is coming through you. And so I trust you. You do what you got to do in my life. You, you work it out. And then when Saul's in his lap, he's like, he's able to look at Saul like somebody he cares about and loves. Instead of the guy who threw a spear at him or, or gave his wife to some other guy. Or made sure that he was hunted for 10 years. That guards our attitudes when we're able to say, God is my defense. I still think one of the best words of advice I ever got from a, from a godly man was the idea that you don't need to defend yourself. If you start defending yourself, defending yourself is all you're going to do. You don't need to defend yourself. God is your defense. You just put yourself in God's hands. And yeah, some days people hate you. It's okay. David said, this is from the hands of God. I trust him. Look what he says in verse 11. For God is a just judge. And God is angry with the wicked every day. Is there ever a day God doesn't hate sin? Is there ever a day where God's like, you know, today I'm just not so irritated by sin. You know, sin's cool today. No. Every day, God is angry with the wicked. But, verse 12 begins, if he does not turn back, he would sharpen his sword. If he does not turn back means that God is constantly waiting. He does not bring the judgment that we deserve. He is long-suffering, desiring that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's the heart of God. So when judgment comes, you should see, when the judgment falls, when we read in the Old Testament about crazy judgment, and God saying, wipe everybody out, I need you to know that while that's going on, there are tears rolling down the face of God. Because His desire would not be that I have to wipe them out, but that they would repent. But, he is unwilling to sacrifice his own children for those who are wrought with this disease. He realizes 
The only thing that will cure this disease is to wipe it out. Then my kids have a chance. Then those who follow me have the opportunity. Woe to the man or the woman that comes to the place where, where God looks at them and says, That's it. I give you over. And it happens, right? We read stories about it. We can see individuals like Pharaoh. We can see nations who came to that point and came to that place. Man, God is a just judge. And if he doesn't turn back, then he will sharpen his his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. God is prepared to judge. God is ready to judge. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. He is ready to judge, but he waits. A lot of the Psalms are filled with that frustration. Lord, why don't you get them guys? Aren't they? Get Knock out their teeth. Break their bones. But all the while, God's ready. His judgment is set. But he is waiting. It says in verse 14, Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. So ultimately, sin. He gives birth to sin. The wicked gives birth to iniquity. You guys know the idea that... I don't know if I'll say it right. Barking doesn't make you a dog, but if you're a dog, you bark. Your your sin didn't make you a sinner. You were a sinner. And so you sin. You're born that way. Born broken. And so he says, the wicked. There's nobody who doesn't fall under that phrase. Sorry. We were all... What does the Bible say? We were in Ephesians chapter 2. For we were all dead in trespasses and sins. But God made us alive. So the wicked give, give birth to iniquity. Sin comes forth from the wicked. And he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. It's natural progression of his life. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. You cannot live in sin and not have payday someday. Just because you got away with it. You know, I, I did this and nothing happened. And I did it again and I did it again and still nothing happened. And I did it again and I did it again and still nothing happened. You're just storing up wrath as a child of, of disobedience. Now what the Bible declares? Storing up for themselves wrath. That word wrath is not thumios. It's not a sudden flash of, of uncontrolled anger. It's a predisposed judgment against something. In this case, predisposed judgment against sin. If you sin, death will happen. And so when the Bible and Psalms, it talks about he dug a pit and fell in it. He played with sin and played with sin and then sin came and got what sin takes. That's what happens, right? When, when uh, uh, what's his name? H- Hamath? Is it Hamath? Uh, Esther. Haman built the, built the, thank you, man, English, my second language. Built the gallows. Uh, that was sin, right? He's trying to wipe out all the people of God, but where, where did, he, did he fall in his own trap? Yeah, and sin came for him. That's that's the idea. You cannot live in sin and not be... Yeah, it's going to get you. It's going to get you. You can't play with a scorpion without it stinging you. 
yeah, shout it from the rooftops, right? Man, that's no, it's no good. Sin will find you. He says then in verse 16, his trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. Now we say, well, sometimes the wicked, they make it all the way through life. Yeah, that didn't, there's no pass. If the wicked lived wickedly their whole life and nothing happened to them here, what happened the moment they died? They stood before their maker, man. Can you imagine that day? Man, that's, that's no good. They sat in Sheol, grave. It's like when you were a kid and you got in trouble and your dad said, Go to your room, I'm going to be up there in a minute to whoop you. And you sat there and waited for that judgment day. That's what's going on. The great white throne, God's gonna, they're going to stand before the Lord. There's no second chance, no pass, no way out. Yeah, that's it. You're, that's hell. That's why when Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who was, who was in hell, who was in Sheol, who was in the grave, he said, send Lazarus over here to cool my tongue. I'm in torment. I'm in torment, man. I have no hope but hell. That's torment. That's torment. So, that's, that's their end. <laughs> that's, that's not a pass. That's not a pass. So what is he? He sums it all up in verse 17. So what will I do? I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Yahweh El Elyon. The Lord Most High. Man, he says, I'm going to praise him. I'm not praising him for my circumstances, that, that life is hard. I'm not praising him because uh, I'm sick or I'm struggling. I'm praising him because he's righteous. And he's worthy of my praise. So I'm going to praise him. Don't you see it's an attitude? It's an attitude of how we're going to face the struggles in our life. We, we, none of us know what tomorrow holds for us, do we? Could be good news, could be bad news, could be any kind of news. We don't know. But God's still good. He's still righteous. He still loves me. He still has a plan for my life. He's still developing me into the, the, the lump of clay He wants me to be. And so He's worthy of my praise. And so David says, I'm going to praise Him. And He praises Him and gives Him thanks in the middle of the caves. While people are talking trash about Him. Doesn't change it. Doesn't change it. Life is a battlefield. From one day to the next. Next we come to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, uh, an incredible hymn. Uh, uh, again, a praise psalm. It's, uh, much of this psalm should sound familiar to you. In fact, we're going to look at a couple other places as we work our way through. But it begins, O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, Adonai. Yahweh, God's name, Adonai, my master. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. You ever just stop to think about what that means? How excellent is your name in all the earth? Your name, the the name Yahweh, the becoming one, the He is or can be, Everything we need. 
man, your name is excellent above all the earth. It's incredible. It's amazing. It's, it's stupendous. I just am amazed by it. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. Maybe you've heard it like this. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Same concepts, same ideas. You have ordained strength, man. Strength comes from God. The idea is he can perfect his praise through the weeping of a child. He can establish strength in a little baby. Which you don't look at and say, man, that's a strong baby. We get all blown away. Somebody has a baby and they can pick up their own head. Man, he's got a strong neck. No, not really, but stronger than some. <laughs> he's, he's the weakest he's ever going to be, right? As a, as a baby. But God says, man, I established strength in a baby. Or I can perfect praise in his voice. That's, I, you guys get what I mean? That you're, you're, when we're translating in the Psalms, we're translating the, the concept, the thought, the parallelism in the Hebrew poetry. And the idea is, man, God, His name is so excellent. He, he has strength in a baby. He can make a baby strong enough to deliver. Or, or He can perfect praise in that weeping. Isn't that true? Can't God perfect praise when we weep? When we cry? Man, man, sometimes that's the more the the purest form of us crying out to God that will ever be. It's God that does that. It's God that does that perfect work. And then He says it because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. He said, "Oh, look, the enemies think they got it won, but God perfects praise in an infant. The enemies think they got it won, but God establishes strength in the infant. God delivers." How? Saeed's in prison. Guys are beating him whenever they want to beat him. Whatever horrible things that are happening in there. One day we may know, or maybe he never gets out and we never find out really what was all going on. But I guarantee you, the perfect praise that, that affects the ears of God is, well, that guy has just beaten him and Saeed praises. Maybe as he's weeping through a broken face, crying out to God, telling God he loves him. That was perfect praise. And that man who delivered the beating cannot be unaffected. Cannot break. You cannot break that man. You throw Paul in a prison, you beat him, you put him in chains, and you can't get that guy to stop talking about Jesus. He has ordained strength in an infant. Enemies don't get the victory when God's people realize, man, God can get the victory from a baby. All I got to do is let him work in my life. Let him change my attitude. How is it that people facing life and death struggles are able to praise the name of God because they find themselves in a place of peace even though they're, they're facing cancer or even though they're going through horrific things in their family. They're able to cling to God. Who gave them the strength for that? God did. We, You and I say, I don't know if I could do that in their case. Well, guess because God ain't gave it to you. You're not going through it right now. But when you do... He'll give you the strength. He'll give you what you need at the time that you need it. 
Then in verse 3, he moves in this attitude of praise. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. Whose heavens are they? Yeah, it's God's. <laughs> and who put it together? God did, right? When I consider your heavens, and he's talking about all the heavens. Not just the place where God is. I mean everything we can see in the heavens. The work of your fingers... The moon and the stars which you have ordained. When we start talking about the amazing expanse of the universe, man, there's, it's just mind-boggling that how big and how huge and how perfectly fit together it is. When I consider all of that, this big stuff, all this big things going on, then Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who am I? What is man? There's only one person who could ask this question. The dogs don't ask this question. Horses, animals, they don't ask this question. Only man. Man is able to ask this question. Who am I compared to all this vast greatness? Who am I? When he says, who am I that you are mindful? That word mindful means compassionate toward. <laughs> who am I that you love me? That's literally what he's saying. Who am I that you love me? Look at all this expanse. Compared to all that, I'm so small. But you love me. Is there something that God will withhold from you? Huh. Because, you know, the scripture says he has already given you the greatest thing he possesses. His son. Since he has given you his son, will he not also with him freely give you all good things? So if you don't got it, what's that mean? It ain't good. It ain't good. He give you, it's good. He's given you so, the, so much already in His Son. So who is mine, who is man that you are mindful or compassionate toward Him? And the Son of Man that you visit Him. That you'll attend to Him. Jesus' favorite titles right there. His favorite title when He was here on earth as Messiah was Son of Man. His favorite thing to be was the day He came to be your substitute. Man, that's mind-boggling. Almighty God who has everything, He's lacking nothing. But His greatest joy was to attend to my greatest need. To be my sin sacrifice man that's David's just 
just praising the Lord and, and glorifying Him. He says, For you have made Him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned Him with glory and honor. Now here, in the psalm, He's talking about mankind. But when we go to Hebrews, you go to Hebrews chapter 2, 5-9, through 9, now He's making reference that Him, the writer of Hebrews, is comparing that Him to Jesus Christ. As He came as man, made a little lower than the angels, to be elevated above the angels. In fact, He goes on to say that at the name of Jesus, every Every knee will bow of those in heaven and those in earth everywhere every knee means every knee they will bow he's exalted above all above every name that is to be named man that's amazing and that's attributed there in Hebrews 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he, he, he makes reference as well. In verse 6 here in Psalm 8, he says, For you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now he's talking about man. He's talking about man. And he's shadowing the truth of the Son of Man, Messiah. But he's speaking of man. Man's created to, to, to be in control. Man's created to tame Man's created to have uh, authority over his planet. That's what he was created for. He gave that away. He sold it for a bite of fruit. Gave it all away for the idea that I won't need God anymore. And that was the fall. And on that day, Satan took control. Prince in the power of the air, here. The prince in the power, here. Until Revelation. And Jesus comes and sticks a flag back on earth. And says, now nah, I'm taking it. I paid for that. I paid for that price. I bought it back. It's mine. And Satan, you're going to have to go. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. Man, that's amazing. Just just as a side note, that a a land-faring, non-sea-faring people, the Jewish people, and this was written... This this was first translated in 270 B.C. That was a long time ago. That God told the psalmist, inspired the psalmist to write about the paths in a sea for a people who never sailed on ocean and have no idea that there really is paths in the sea. What are the paths in the sea? Currents. Isn't, don't ships still use those currents today? I can tell you they do. Uh, the, the Iwo Jima that I was on did not just sit around and, and motor through, plow through the middle of the ocean. They use the currents. They get where they need to go in the shipping lanes. You guys heard of that? The paths of the sea. Written by people who are not known for boats, except for fishing boats that are about the size of a big canoe. <laughs> How do they know that? Because the author is God. That's how they know. And then he ends it as he began it. 
Oh Lord, our Lord, Yahweh Adonai, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Psalm of praise, praising God for his love, praising God for his mercy, that he would come, that he would pay. Psalm 8 is also considered messianic. Who is man that you are mindful of him? In Hebrews 2, associated with Messiah. Now, Psalm 9, another praise psalm. Man, lots of praise in the midst of all the chaos going on in David's life. To the chief musician, to the tune of death of a son. So I'm thinking somehow that's a depressing song. But I don't know. Death of the son, a psalm of David. How does it begin? I will praise you. It's a statement of will. See, that's what praise really is. Praise is a statement of will. He doesn't say, I feel like praising you. What's he say? I will praise you. And then he's not saying, I will praise you, you know, lackadaisically. Right? What's he say the rest of it? Oh, Lord, with all my heart. With my whole heart. The heart, the idea of the heart, really, anytime you read heart in the, in the Bible, it's bowels. Because for the, for the Middle Eastern culture, the bowels was the seat of emotion. You feel there. And so, that's the word that's used. But for us, in, in the, in the Western world, we say, my heart. I, my heart is broken, right? We don't say, my bowels are broken. But if you talk about when we get butterflies, that's not in our heart, right? When we're nervous or we're afraid, we don't feel that in our heart. So that's where it comes from. But the idea is, I'm giving all of me. All of me. Right? Everything I am. Every every part of my emotion, I'm going to give it to Him. I'm going to give it to Him. It's an act of will. Praise is an act of will. I will praise you. Man, that's, that's so vital for us to understand. Because if we're sitting around waiting to feel it, well, it's going to kind of go up and down, right? Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. But the strength that we find in praising the Lord is found in the exercise of our will. I will praise you. And I'm going to praise you with everything that is within me. Everything that is with, within me will praise the Lord. I will tell. Act of will. I will tell of your marvelous works. You always feel like telling your neighbor about what Jesus has done in your life? You always feel like telling the guy you're waiting in line behind? When you're at Black Friday shopping and you're in that crazy long line, did you think about, I, you know, I really feel like talking about Jesus with this person in front of me. I mean, we're celebrating his birthday. Going shopping for it. It's an act of will. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will tell all. I will praise. I will tell. What's it say in verse 2? Act of will. I will be glad and rejoice in what? In you. The Bible says rejoice always. And again I say rejoice. Our attitude is to be an attitude of rejoice. We don't have to rejoice that life is hard. 
We don't have to rejoice that that hurt so bad. We can always rejoice in God. We can always rejoice in who He is. We can always rejoice for what He has done. But it's an act of will. I will be glad and rejoice. I know it. I know it as sure as I choose to be cranky sometimes. I'm sure none of you have that problem. But as soon as I choose to be cranky because it's just the comfortable shirt, I know I can choose to be glad. Right? I know because I can look over at Kathy. She does it every day. She got to live with me. She got every reason to wake up cranky. Oh, I bet the first thing Jackie says this morning before he puts his lips on a cup of coffee, he's going to complain about something. How often is that true? I know. She's so good to me. She's so good to me. We, it's an act of will to be glad and rejoice. And there's strength in it. And the seed of praise is found there. And the, and the difference in our attitude for the entire day is in that place. Never once have I been strengthened by my desire to complain. Never once have I felt better by going, by just chewing on a bone about some Something somebody done. Some wrong they did. It never made me feel better. I will be glad and rejoice in you. That's a choice. A lot of choices here, right? In Psalm 9. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. I will sing praise to your name. The whole first two verses is all, every bit of it, about choosing that, that attitude, attitude of praise, of thanksgiving, of rehearsing the things God's done for you, counting your blessings, of being glad and rejoicing, of singing, all acts of will. And when am I going to use those things? Well, he says in verse 3, When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. They don't perish at his. How are our problems solved? <laughs> when God shows up. When God shows up, there's all. Whenever we worry, you realize when we're worrying, God's never part of the solution we're worrying about. If we're worrying about a, a confrontation somewhere out there, oh, I gotta confront so and so or such and such, and I'm, I'm a little uptight about that. If I'm worrying about it, it's because I don't, I don't see God in it. Because if God's in it, what am I worried about? God's there. He's going to anoint the conversation. It's going to be good. It may be unpleasant, but God's going to show up. That, he's, it's, that, it's that faith of seeing God's presence. Look what he says in verse 4. For you, I want you to notice, all this is past tense. For you have maintained my right and my cause. So, just so you know, as long as David is alive, that has not been fully realized. But in David's mind, it's so absolute, it's past tense. You get what I mean? It's so absolute, he says, You have always maintained my right and my cause. That's the emphaticness of the the scripture saying. You sat, past tense, on the throne, judging in righteousness. You've been a righteous judge in my life. You have rebuked the nations. (laughs) 
You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. He's so sure in the ultimate victory of God that he speaks of it all as past tense. Is that how you see God's victory in your life? It's an act of will. Are God's promises for you so sure you speak of them in the past tense? That's pretty incredible, right? Pretty incredible to have that heart of praise. He says in verse 6, Oh, enemy destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. So he's speaking to his enemies. Destructions are finished forever. You have no more victory in my life, enemies. And you have destroyed cities. You have in the past been victorious, but even their memory has perished. I don't even remember any of that. Why? But the Lord will endure forever. Because God's here, man. The Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared His throne for judgment, and He will judge the world in righteousness. And He shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Man, God is never wrong in what He does. God, you got my back, God. You won't do it wrong. You won't do it wrong. And in verse 9, I love, The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. You ever need a refuge? You want another word for refuge? The Lord is my strong tower. My fortress. A mighty fortress is our God. He is the place I run to for safety. That's what he's saying. The Lord, he will, he will be a refuge for the oppressed. If you've ever been oppressed or a refuge in times of trouble, just in case you don't feel oppressed. And every time of trouble, wherever you find yourself oppressed or depressed or struggling, the Lord will be your refuge, your strong tower, the place you run to, the place you feel safe. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. We look to it. We look for it in a hundred different places. If only I get a little more money, then I'll be okay. If only I get a better job. If only I I move to a different neighborhood. But those aren't the answers. The Lord is our strong tower. He's my refuge. It's all we need. We need Him and more of Him. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. Oh, don't miss this. Those who know your name. Oh, I know God's name's Yahweh. No, no, no. He's talking about experientially. You know God's name. God's name means, I have become everything you need. I am the becoming one, right? I am. In, in Greek, it's the ego I me. I am. I am what you need. When Moses asked him in Exodus, Lord, what shall I say? What do I tell the people when they ask me, who sent you? Well, you tell them, I am has sent. I am. That, it's, it's the word. Yahweh, which is the letters for the, the YHVH of, of the, the name of God. I, I am. I am what you need. I'm light when you're in the darkness. I'm a shepherd when you've lost your way. I'm the door when you need to come in. And aren't those all the things Jesus said? I am the way. The truth, the life, I am what you need. Those who know your name, those who know 
He is what I need. Man, they trust in you. Isn't that cool? Man, those who, who know your name put their trust in you. For you, Lord, it's capital L-O-R-D. Don't miss those things. That's his name, Yahweh. Yahweh, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. What does that mean? Seek you. Oh, I'm searching for God. No, that's not what he's talking about. When he says those who seek you, that seek their satisfaction in God. That's seeking Him. You only do that when you know who He is. That's why the Bible says in Romans, no one seeks after God. But as God reveals Himself to people, and they, they understand, man, you, you are the becoming one. You are what I need. Then they seek Him. Right? They seek that satisfaction. They seek to be able to lay hold and, and pull Him in. To be a part. To cling to. To have. Man, Lord. The Lord does not forsake those who seek Him. You want to find satisfaction in God? You're going to find it. Go. But it's in Him. It's not in His stuff. It's in Him. Not in His stuff. His stuff is cool. And we're thankful for His stuff. And I love the good stuff God gives. But... Man, it's in Him. It's in Him. So sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare His deeds among the people. You ever wonder why everybody fights over that rock? You know, Zion is just another name for Jerusalem. It's a, it's a, it's a name that the Hebrew people have always used for, for Jerusalem, for the holy city. Why in the world do people fight over that? I mean, if you've been there, it's a rock. There's no oil in the ground. There's no diamonds floating all over the place on Jerusalem. It's a mountain. And all the building material is stone. They build everything out of stone. And the roads are stone. And, and, it's, and it's not covered with, with beautiful trees and, and amazing. It's, it's filled with people and it's dirty. <laughs> and when you look at it, you know that's where God put His name. You know why that's so important? Because, man, that's a perfect picture of the reality of, of, of ministry and being with people. See, being with, God was never afraid to be dirty. He was never afraid to come. They called him a wine-bibber and a whoremonger. Because he wasn't afraid of the sinner. He would be with them. And I, that city is, such, to me, such a picture of that. And so God says, I'm not afraid to call this place by my name. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was never ashamed of his people. And his people weren't perfect, right? None of those three guys were not liars, cheaters, or had problems. All of them did. But God was never ashamed to be known as their God. That shames me if I am ashamed to be known as his child. Well, I don't, I don't want anybody to know I'm a top, top secret Christian. Well, hang that. If he's not afraid to be known by my name, Jacob, then I'm not afraid to be known by his. His is way better than mine. He dwells in Zion, in that dirty place where the people are. 
He's not afraid to be in that. He wasn't afraid to come and to wear our shoes and to walk our roads and to feel our emotions. He wasn't afraid to be known by our name. So praise the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare His deeds among the people. And when He avenges blood, He remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. God never forgets one of His kids that was slain. He never forgets. That's what He's saying. When He avenges blood, He remembers them. There will be uh, a day of reckoning. I've always liked that word. Reckoning. The, the voices under the altar in, in Revelation cry out, How long, O Lord, till you'll avenge our blood? You remember what God says? A little longer. When your number's complete, payday, someday. But God does not ever forget their name. He did not lose a one of them. Though the enemy looks like he had victory over them, God didn't lose them. They're His. He remembers them. And there will be a reckoning. There will be a reckoning over those things. I love that, that, that concept. The Lord, He does not forget the cry of the humble. So have mercy on me, Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death. Look, it's because of His mercy and compassion that we are not consumed. Have mercy on me, God. Because I'm broken just like them people. It's you who lift me up from the gates of death. When my time is up, it will not be because some crazy guy ran into church and blasted the preacher. Even if a crazy guy runs into church and blasts the preacher, that'll be the day that God said, Jackie's time to come home. That guy didn't do nothing. God's the one who lifts me from the gates of hell, or the, or the gates of Sheol, the gates of death. God's the one who holds me up. And when he sets me down, when that day's over, it's over. It's okay. I'm in his hands. Every day I live, and the day I die. He says, I know you're rising up, and you're lying down. That doesn't mean God knows when you get up in the morning and when you go to bed. He does know that too. But He knows the day you're born and the day you're going to go home to be with Him. So He says that, So that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in your salvation. So He's chosen. I will sing praise and I will tell people about what you've done and I will be glad and rejoice and I will sing praise for who you are and I will sing praise for what you've done and now I will sing praise for your salvation. It's all stuff that God's doing. See, we always can praise. Rejoice always. And again, I say it's not hard when we realize <laughs> where the joy is found. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Not the joy of suffering. Well, there can be joy in suffering because I'm looking at Him. He's worthy. He's, he's worthy of that rejoicing. He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our praise. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. Again, this is the idea of sin being brought to full effect. 
We haven't seen it yet. Although we see the nations plunging. Don't you see the nations plunging? Man, the world's crazy. This doesn't shock us when you, when you kill the innocent and you reject truth and you turn your back on God. What is the effect of all those things? Well, we're seeing it. And it doesn't matter. This country, the other country, I mean, we're, we are, so we don't have ISIS here. You know, we got, we got people willing to kill other people just because they're mad about something somebody else did. That don't make no sense. Ferguson don't make no sense. Was don't make no sense. L.A. a few years ago don't make no sense. None of that stuff makes any sense. It's because sin is coming to roost. We're falling into the pit we dug. Yeah. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Man, digging that ditch, falling in. In the net they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment He executes. The wicked is snared in the work of His own hands. Meditation, Selah. When we look at that, the wicked is snared in the work of His own hands. Look, don't always think of that in terms of, oh, then people are saying that God's going to catch them in it. God may let them do that your whole life. But they won't escape judgment. Nobody escapes judgment. It is perfect. Never misses a one. Judgment day, someday. Every man. The Bible says it's appointed under man who wants to die, and then what? Judgment. How many men? Every man. Every man. Every man don't die the same way. Every, every man don't die the same amount of times. But every man will face judgment. Every man, sure as death, judgment. Man, there will be the wicked snared in the work of his own hands. Why will the wicked be judged? Because of what he did, right? Snared by the work of his own hands. The wicked shall be turned into hell. Now, that phrase is so radical. Really what it what it's saying the wicked will return to hell. Death is their natural state. Now think about that with Ephesians chapter 2. For you were once dead in trespass and sin. Doesn't say you were like death. He says you were dead. Your natural state, for the moment mankind fell, what did God say? If you eat of this fruit, dying, you will die. Your, the natural state of man is death. So here when he says, they will, they shall be turned into hell, to shield, to death, to the grave, they're going back to their natural state. That's it. The, the wicked are just in their natural state. In Ephesians 2, Paul bears that out. You were once dead. Who made us alive? Jesus Christ, right? We're made alive in Him. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, You must what? Be born again. Man, you got to be born again. You ain't alive right now, brother. You're just a walking dead. We're a bunch of zombies walking around without Christ. With Christ... Now we're made alive. Now we're made alive. So, so the nations, the wicked, shall be turned 
into hell and all the nations that forget God. Right? They don't know His name. They don't have a relationship with Him. All of them. For the needy will not always be forgotten. Now oftentimes in Hebrew poetry, they'll look at the faithful as the poor, the needy, the oppressed. Because oftentimes the people who follow the God find themselves in that place. I don't mean always, but often the, the ones who follow the Lord find themselves uh, oppressed by someone. Some nation, some being, some, some thing. So the idea is, is that, that they're the poor. They won't always be forgotten. Even though it feels like, sometimes he says, we're not going to get to Psalm 10, but where are you, God? Where are you? You ever feel that way? <laughs> he says, I haven't forgotten. He says, they will not always be, but there are times they're going to feel that way. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. What was the expectation? Man, something's better because there's a better day coming. It's a better day. Man. And one day, it's going to be so radical, it's unbelievable. So he says, arise, O Lord, and do not let man prevail. It's the word ish. Ish is a word used in the the Hebrew for man that, that is emphasizing his frailty, his weakness. So don't let, don't let man, um, prevail, the weakness of man, or the nations, let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Again, ish. That they know themselves to be weak. That they know themselves to be in need of a Savior. Don't we need a Savior? Man, as we go through that idea, just prayerfully as we, as we work our way through Psalms, the idea, this is the, this is the battle hymns of the nation, of the followers of God. And sometimes we praise, and sometimes we, we lament, and sometimes we cry out for justice. Because it's all the, the songs of the battlefield. But it's good and it's okay. Because the one thing they all have in common, the common thread that's woven through the Psalms, is all we need is Him. 